The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, this morning, we're taking a brief pause from the Gospel of Mark, which we've been studying for some time, to really consider the work of the Apostle Paul and his pastoral ministry. This morning, in a sense, we're going to be studying pastoral ministry, and I recognize this morning that the vast majority of you are are not pastors, and you'll likely never be pastors. Uh, You ladies, of course, would be disqualified from that office, according to the guidelines laid down in Titus and 1 Timothy 3. Hopefully that doesn't come as a surprise to you. But for the vast majority of you, it's true also that you'll not serve as a pastor. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why, why think about pastoral ministry? Why study uh, pastoral ministry? Well, I'd like you to just consider that question uh, for a moment with me. I'm convinced uh, that it's important for each one of us to have a robust understanding of what a pastor is and what he's meant to do and how she should operate in a local church. I believe that if you're ignorant of this topic, it will bring you, it'll be personally costly for you. You, your family, those you influence will suffer by a weak or unbiblical view of pastoral ministry. You say, well, why is this? Well, let me give you some reasons. Let me give you several reasons why you should study and understand pastoral ministry or the role that God has given to pastors. And the first reason is simply that the the New Testament addresses this issue. We have three letters in the New Testament that are specifically written for pastors. That is the first and second Timothy and also the book of Titus. Large portions of the book of 1 Thessalonians and 1 and 2 Corinthians also give insight into pastoral ministry. And so with all this revelation given on this topic, we should be certain that God wants us to know something about it for our equipping. After all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is meant to train us to live a godly life and to equip us for every good work. So simply put, we should study and know this topic because God has spoken to it. He's revealed it. In essence, because this topic is found in our Bibles, it deserves our attention. And this careful attention to this subject will train us in righteousness. Secondly, pastoral ministry is really a critical component of discipleship. In the Great Commission, the final charge that Jesus spoke to his disciples at the end of the book of Matthew, we as Christians are called to make disciples. That's a command we're all given. And what's clear throughout the rest of the New Testament is that healthy disciples are cultivated in and through the local church. For any who would be serious about making disciples, then they will be serious about the local church, which of course implies that they'll be thoroughly aware of how a local church is to be led and governed. They will be thoroughly aware of the work of pastoral ministry. Faithful disciples of Christ will be eager to make disciples and will be eager to make disciples through the local church, which is led by pastors. Additionally, I could add, those who are invested in a healthy church will be most effective in their own personal ministry of making disciples. Healthy churches foster an environment where spiritual growth can occur for all. 
Those who are seeking to be obedient to Christ and to make disciples will be eager to pull those they are ministering into a healthy local church. That is to say, faithfulness to the Great Commission is blessed by the healthy environment of a local church. Fourth, God expects every Christian to be committed to a church. So you will do well then to invest in a healthy local church. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 calls every Christian to be strategically thinking about how they can invest in others to compel them and to stir them up to love and good deeds. And they're to do that by not forsaking the assembling together of the church. A Christian will be gathering with the local assembly if they're faithful to the New Testament. According to the New Testament, every Christian will commit himself or herself to a local church to follow Christ with others. And since God requires you to be committed to a church, you'll be blessed if you're committed to a healthy one. And the health of any church is always a direct is always directly related to her leaders. What they believe, what they teach, how they live, how they minister. Similarly, we could say God not only expects every Christian to be in a church, he expects that every Christian have pastors in their lives. It's God's will for the pastors of the local church to know and to care for their sheep. Knowing that God desires this of you, you ought to know what those pastors are to do for you and how they are to shepherd you and care for you, which again means that you need to know and understand pastoral ministry. This implies that you need to understand the role of pastors so that you can then lovingly encourage the pastors over you in the work that God has called them to. As a sheep, yes, you can encourage the shepherds, the pastors. So to sum all this up, I might just say, your understanding of the responsibility and the role of pastoral ministry in the local church will lead to your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. It will bless your faithfulness to the Great Commission. It will strengthen and encourage the pastors over you. And it will bless the, the health of our church or whatever church you're a part of. And ultimately, we could add, it will all bring glory to God. This is why we study these things and know them. But additionally, we could say that for some of you men, studying this topic may also be the preparation that God would use in your life for when you are called upon to serve as a pastor. I hope that many of you men in this church will one day serve as faithful local church elders, shepherds, maybe lay pastors. And so I hope for you in particular that you will follow along closely here. But no matter your station in life, this is one issue that you cannot afford to neglect. It's imperative that you understand the leadership role, the leadership group of the church. And on this topic, I don't really want to assume anything this morning. So I thought it would be helpful for us just to be reminded of a few things about pastoral ministry in general. And first I would just say that the primary responsibility given to pastors in the New Testament is that they shepherd the flock of God among them, that they shepherd the sheep. Now, if you know something about the etymology of words, this might seem a bit redundant to you because you probably know that the English word pastor comes from the Latin word pastor, which means to shepherd, to shepherd. So essentially, I'm saying that the key responsibility given to pastors is to pastor. 
And the key responsibility given to shepherds is to shepherd. That's because pastors are shepherds. Pastors must pastor. Shepherds must shepherd. That's what they're to do. We understand what they're to do based upon the term itself. They are to pastor. You can see this as you open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'd love for you to turn there. Open up your copy of God's Word and just to see for yourself what God has revealed about this topic. 1 Peter, so that's towards the end of the New Testament. Turn past the book of Hebrews and you'll find James and then look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Here we find the Apostle Peter's instructions about shepherding. Look at it there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the command. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So, wonderful passage here. Note first who Paul is speaking to, or Peter is speaking to. He's addressing the elders. He calls himself a, a fellow elder. And know what he's calling them to do. They're to shepherd the flock of God among them. Not the entire flock, not the entire church, but the flock of God among them, the local church. Not, not every Christian everywhere, but this, just those in their particular local church. And not even every Christian online, but just the church members, those in their church, shepherd the flock of God among you. Additionally, he says they're to exercise oversight. You see that uh, from this verb, oversight, give oversight, we get the term overseer, which we find in Scripture. And th that is just another term for this leadership office, overseeing. Interestingly, from the word overseer, we get the word bishop. That's where that word comes from, is the Greek word behind this. So this is bishops. So in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we find a list of character qualifications for the overseers or for the bishops. So here in 1 Peter 5, Paul, or Peter is speaking to the elders. He calls them to shepherd or pastor, and then he calls them to exercise oversight. And see, what we have here in this passage is the three primary terms that we find in the New Testament to describe the leadership of the local church. We find elders, shepherding, and also exercising oversight. Those are the three main terms. Elders, overseers, shepherds, or pastors. All of those terms in the New Testament are synonymous. In the New Testament, a pastor is an elder and he is an overseer. The term elder implies spiritual wisdom and maturity. The term pastor implies practicing shepherding and pastoral care of the sheep. The term overseer implies giving leadership and direction for the church. And all of these terms are used to describe this leadership class, this one leadership class in the local church, and in every local church, I might add. But look again at Peter's primary directive given to the elders here. Look again. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Look all this buildup. The witness of the sufferings of Christ 
and a partaking also of the glory of God that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. You see why I say this is the primary responsibility given to pastors. Now, this, of course, involves eagerly exercising oversight among them, proving to be examples also, it says in, later in verse 3, and also to, to shepherd in a way that represents and emulates this, this chief shepherd who is Christ. Christ is the chief, chief shepherd over all the sheep, and really just pastors and local churches serve as under-shepherds serving under the chief shepherd. Uh, they shepherd in the stead of Christ. And although the term shepherding is not used, we find really the same idea over in Hebrews chapter 13. If you would just back up in your Bible with me a couple books to the end of Hebrews chapter 13. And note, we're going to look at verse 17. And here God, here the author of Hebrews is speaking to the, to the sheep of the church, the church members. And look at the instructions that we find here. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Notice here that the term pastor, overseer, or elders is not used, but the author just simply uses the term leaders. But we know that the leaders of the local church are elders. They are the pastors. They are the overseers. Again, these are synonymous terms. So that's who's being referred to here. Look at the text again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So although this is ultimately a call for submission to the elders, look at the responsibility here given to pastors. They are to keep watch over souls, protecting your spiritual well-being. As one day, those pastors will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for their care of your soul. One day, pastors will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged and assessed for their spiritual care for the congregation. And this is really an incredible, weighty responsibility given to elder pastors. Those who occupy this, this role, this office in a local church really have a, a great privilege and responsibility that they must steward well. And it's my experience that this is perhaps the most neglected verse in the Bible about pastoral ministry. It's as if this verse is so challenging and so daunting that pastors just ignore it altogether. I mean, when the focus is upon growing a church is just as large and as fast as you possibly can, this verse becomes quite countercultural. Pastors just often pretend these sort of passages don't exist. I mean, all around the church, all around us, we see Christians attending churches where there's no individual shepherding, where there's hardly even awareness of who gathers, who comes, who's a part of the church. And the church just becomes merely an entertaining outing to attend, an emotional shot in the arm to sort of charge the spiritual batteries for the week. You see, the church has been modified into a a worship experience, something to experience rather than a, a community to join and to follow Christ with. And we see it all over the place, unknown and unshepherded masses going to church where there, there is no shepherding, there is no care for the sheep. And I can't see how that's faithful to the New Testament. How can one man shepherd thousands of souls? 
How can one man even know thousands of names, let alone spiritually care for them? So faithful shepherding requires a team of godly men working together for the care of the souls of the church, those entrusted to them, the sheep. One quick side note here in Hebrews 13, 17. I believe that this verse alone is sufficient to establish the practice of church membership. Church membership is simply the way that the sheep tell the shepherds, hey, look, I'm here, shepherd me, care for my soul. And it's the way the shepherds notice who the sheep are and say, identify them. And these ones are submitting to them. These are the ones who have, through baptismal waters, have been recognized as a Christian and therefore are cared for by the church. The elders need to know who they are as they will give an account for them. So this alone provides a foundation for a practice of church membership. But let me return to my earlier point. Faithful shepherding requires a team of godly men working together to care for the souls of those entrusted to them. I trust that point comes as no surprise to you, but just so that you see it clearly, turn over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, I want to make the point to you that every church should have a a team, a plurality of elders. We see this in Titus chapter 1. This is one of the places where we find the list of character qualifications that elder, pastor, shepherds must have. And look with me at chapter 1, only at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul here tells Titus, gives him instructions, Titus, the one he calls my true child in common faith. And he says this, For this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Appoint elders, note the plural, in every city. You see, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea in which Paul made a, a missionary journey to. He evangelized and he won people to Christ there. And Paul had left behind Titus, this young pastoral apprentice of his, to really oversee the work of the gospel there and to set in order what remains, the things that were out of order, namely establishing elders in every city. The idea is that in every city on the island of Crete, there was a church, and in each church, Titus was to go to and help oversee the appointing of elders in each church. So it's not just one man governing the church, not just a CEO. We're not borrowing from the business world here. A team of godly men to shepherd the church. That's how we seek to run our church, of course. Uh, The Lord has provided us with three elders, three pastors that we're very grateful for. Lord willing, with the arrival of Tom in a couple weeks, we'll have a fourth shepherd in our congregation. So this is the the plan that God has laid out. And for those who are careful and desire to pay attention to the New Testament, this pattern is clear. There ought to be a plurality of elders to lead every church who then meet the requirements that we see next in this passage. And this is why I say a team of godly men. Look with me beginning in verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward and not self-willed nor quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious or argumentative, And not fond of sordid gain. He's not out to make money, but is hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self 
controlled. In verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. I mean, much could be said here, but, but you get the idea that these must be godly men, men who are above reproach. That's phrases used twice here. These are men who have no clear weaknesses in their life, no apparent blemish that everyone sees. These are, these are men who have been sanctified. They're faithful husbands. They're faithful managers of their own children. They have trained their children well. They have checked their children's sinful rebellion. And they're them, they themselves are sensible. They're, they're self-controlled men. They're devout. They're hospitable to others. They're not quarrelsome men. And finally, they're teachers. They hold fast to the faithful word. They love sound doctrine, and they love to teach sound doctrine, and they refute those who, who speak air and who teach air. This is what the elder shepherds of the local church are to be. Teachers, those who are constantly presenting the truth, reminding everyone of sound doctrine. Thankfully, God, in his wisdom, is not only giving us just blanket instructions on what elders are to be and instructions about how they're to function in the church, he also gives us an example. He gives us patterns to follow. And sometimes it's the personal examples that we find in Scripture that really speak more to us about this work of pastoral ministry. And really the quintessential example of a faithful pastor in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And much could really could be said about Peter's shepherding, but just by the sheer volume of recorded content that we have from the life of Paul, we know much more about his shepherding. So we, we see in him a, a pattern for us to follow, a model for shepherding. And so it's to this model of shepherding that I'd like us to look today and to examine Paul's faithful example of pastoral ministry. There's really no place better to look than Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. So if you would turn over there with me, Acts chapter 20. This is a wonderful passage in Scripture. And as, as we turn there, Acts chapter 20, let me just set the context for you, set the stage about this place that Paul is ministering. It's the city of Ephesus. He spent three years in this city, and it was the third largest city in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And during his apostolic ministry, this particular city proved to be very fruitful. Uh, when he initially came to the city, as was his custom, he came to the synagogue, and he began preaching the gospel boldly there. And some men and women believed. And then when he was no longer welcome in the synagogue, he, he sort of moved into this teaching venue called the School of Tyrannus, and there daily he began to teach the disciples everything, poured his life into them. He trained the disciples. Acts 19 verse 10 records uh, really the result. It says this, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, just massive outpouring of gospel truth. And in this time, Ephesus would, would really become an epicenter for early Christianity. I mean, next to Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome, this was a, a hub for gospel ministry. And there, Paul established a healthy local church, leaving behind a group of trained elders, godly elder shepherds. When Paul had to 
head west to visit other churches that he had started in Macedonia and Achaia. He left the church in the capable hands of these elders that he had raised up. He would be in the west for about a year and a half. Eventually, he desired to make his way back to Jerusalem. And on the way back to Jerusalem, as he's traveling by sea, he wanted to see those elders in Ephesus one more time. So he made the way along the coastline, and he stopped in the city called Miletus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It would have been about 62 miles south of Ephesus on the coast. And it was that 62 miles that those Ephesian elders would then walk to come hear Paul, to see him one last time, to hear what he would be his final words to them. That's what we have recorded here in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And Paul's warning and his exhortation is really sobering truth about pastoral ministry. We're so thankful that Luke preserved this little interaction on the on the seashore of Miletus as Paul gave one last deposit of truth to these men. Follow along with me as I read verses 17 through 38 as we just examine Paul's pastoral ministry. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on the way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life as any account dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build, build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. This is the end. This is Paul getting on the ship and leaves them. This is the only place that we find in the New Testament where Paul is specifically speaking to church elders, instructing them. And here, speaking to this group of Ephesian elders, he gives them final marching orders. And it's clear from this passage that Paul expected their obedience. And it's also clear that these elders had every intention of obeying Paul here. He was, after all, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached was directly revealed to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of Galatians itself. In Galatians 1.11, it says, for, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, look, the gospel I'm preaching came straight to me from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Paul's gospel is really Jesus' gospel. And Paul's teaching is Jesus' teaching. Therefore, Paul spoke with the authority of Christ. It was not as if Paul were merely speaking and teaching those. He also, of course, gave them an example. He lived with them for three years. He, he gave his life to them as a, as a pattern for them to follow. His words, his action, his life, all of it would have left behind an indelible mark upon these men. Paul was a living example of what pastoral ministry ought to be. He's a model shepherd, a model shepherd for every local church. And it's really a model that frankly challenges me. This is incredibly difficult to live up to. And I think this is a model that should challenge every pastor. But I believe it's, it's a model that also challenges each one of us as just simply as church members. You see, Paul here lays down the standard for faithful ministry in the local church. And today, frankly, I'm convinced that many Christians don't want this kind of pastoral ministry. They'd prefer not to be in a church that functions like Paul's church that he established in Ephesus. People don't want that close. People would prefer, much rather, to not be shepherded at all. They want sort of a free-range Christianity where there's no accountability and no pastoral authority in their life, where they can come and go as they please, where there's really just a complete anonymity, and where you can be your own authority, and no one need know what you believe or how you live on the weekends, and no one seems to care. It's just come and go as you will. And beloved, that's a trap that's easy for us to fall into, where we begin to want that, living independent lives, preferring to keep the church shepherds and the rest of the congregation just at an arm's length so that no one really knows us. So Paul's example here of faithful church shepherding really gives us a picture of a healthy church, what church ought to be, and really healthy church members. And what I'd like to do in the time that remains, rather than dwelling deep into any one particular portion of this passage, is Today, I would just like to sort of hover over this passage, sort of like a, a bush plane flying just over the tops of trees, just noting important features in the terrain below. That's what I'd like to do here. And knowing that Paul's example here is an inspired example that's given to us to follow. 
So that's what our purpose here today. First, I just want you to note from Paul's example, his physical presence with the people. Look at Paul's opening words again in, in verse 18. He says, you yourselves know this. You yourselves know that from the first day I set foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time. Paul tells them, look, remember how much time I was with you. I was with you and I was with you the whole time. We know that Paul worked. He had a day job. And certainly these men would have had sources of employment. But Paul invested a great deal of time with these brothers. And really with everyone in the church. He wasn't just a Sunday-only pastor. This wasn't a Sunday-only ministry. He was in their lives. Sure, he preached on the Lord's Day, he preached to the gathered assembly, but then he went from house to house instructing small groups, family units. And he even we see in verse 31 that he practiced one-on-one -on -one discipleship. He counseled them individually, bringing the word of God to bear upon the things of their life, the issues, their depressions, their weaknesses, their struggles. He brought the word of God to bear on all of it. So this was a man sold out, fully devoted for this mission. He poured his life out into this ministry. And so Paul has left behind a high bar for pastoral ministry. And again, this example cuts both ways. Seeing this time in Scripture prompts me to ask him, am I giving enough time? Am I sacrificially laying down enough time to shepherd this flock? I'm always looking, should I give more time to this work? But this pattern also confronts something in each one of us as regular church members. How much time do we really want to give to the church? How, how much time do we want to give up for church-related things? I mean, for some, even 90 minutes on the Lord's Day is a tough ask. But we need more time together, not less. This is why Sunday school and fellowship meals and members' meetings and any opportunity we can get together and rub shoulders and know one another truly is, all of that is so important. And they present to us an opportunity to, to set aside time from our busy schedules to invest in one another and be known in the local church. As shepherds, it's our responsibility to go after the seek, the weak, sickly sheep in the congregation. But as faithful church members, you can help us as elder pastors by making sure you avail yourself to the ministries that are available. It's my experience that usually the healthiest Christians are those who fully engage themselves in the life of the church. You can also be a blessing to the shepherding of our congregation by you yourselves seeking to shepherd others, uh, by you ministering and caring for others in the church. In, in a healthy church, the church members have been equipped to do the work of the ministry. The church members themselves, led by the pastors, care for one another. This is the whole point of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following. A study of that text. So a healthy church, the members help and come and assist in the shepherding of the church. So that's the first thing that strikes me about this passage is Paul's physical presence with them, the time he spent with them. But second, and note his sacrificial service. Look again at those opening two verses, 18 you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So it's not as if life was easy in Ephesus. Paul was taking bullets there. He labored with tears. 
The tears, those were likely tears shed over the herding sheep as he shepherded souls who made unwise decisions, decisions and then had to guide them through that process, bearing with them their sin struggles, tears. And also, Paul was there hounded by the Jews. The Jews there in Ephesus considered Paul a great threat. Remember, he was there initially in the synagogue preaching. That's where some of those initial converts came from. And it seems that those Jews never forgot it, so they continue to hound him. The plots of the Jews. We also see the type of ministerial life that Paul led in verses 22 and 23. Look there in your Bible. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. That doesn't sound fun. Bonds and afflictions. Wherever you go, Paul, that's what it'll be for you. Bonds and afflictions. This is no walk-in-the-park life for Paul. Walking in the center of God's will for him meant many afflictions. But the, the trials, of course, never caused Paul to draw back from the church. And no, rather, just pressed him on all the more. We know that Paul himself was constantly reminding the disciples that we would all face tribulations. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts 14, 22. Uh, that's true of every Christian. We will all face many tribulations, many trials. That's just the status quo for the Christian life. And so Paul was in no way immune to that. Let me just remind you of what Paul said of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul spoke of his imprisonments, how he was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. There in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24 he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and day spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. Dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That is a model. That is a pattern of faithful pastoral ministry, sacrificial service. We see this same thing reflected in verse 24. Look what Paul writes then. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, but that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So, so Paul didn't cling to his life as if it were something precious to him, something to preserve and keep. Instead, he was constantly giving his life away in service to others. And that is pastoral ministry. But frankly, that's also just the Christian life for each one of us. Christ calls us all to lay down our lives for Christ, to, to count the cost, to follow him, we're called to carry out the work of the ministry, and ministry is costly. It, it will certainly, ministry will certainly cost you your free time. Uh, your hobbies will suffer if you're engaged in ministry. Uh, your career may even suffer if you're faithful as you engage in ministry. Uh, your life 
will become all about serving Christ. And not self-preservation, not self-fulfillment, and certainly not entertaining ourselves to death, but being a minister for the sake of Christ. That's what Christ calls us all to. It's the cost of discipleship. And Paul exemplified it. And I hope that you can look into your own life and see that cost. What price have you paid for following Christ? What have you suffered for the sake of following Christ? Hopefully we see the evidence in all of our lives. But not only was Paul with them and he gave us this model of sacrificial service, but he also modeled evangelism for them. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, his young apprentice, he says, look, Timothy, you need to do the work of an evangelist. You as a young pastor need to do the work of an evangelist. And what's clear in Ephesus here is that Paul practiced what he preached. He did the work of an evangelist. And verse 21 highlights Paul's evangelistic ministry. He says he, how he solemnly testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, Paul also reminded the Ephesian elders of how he, he testified solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So in Ephesus, in Ephesus, Paul was this evangelistic force there. He called people to repent of their sins, turning towards God, and then he called them to believe in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what everyone must do to the gospel message. They must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. People are to repent and believe the gospel. And Paul, as for himself, was an unashamed witness of the gospel of Christ. And you can be certain that a church with such a leader, one so inflamed with evangelistic passion, certainly the rest of the church is going to catch fire as well. The whole church will be fired up for evangelism. Under such leadership, Paul wasn't the only one proclaiming the gospel in this church. Paul's zeal for evangelism splashed all over everyone in the church. And together, they were together a faithful witness for Christ. That's why we find in Acts 19.10 that the whole region heard the word of the Lord. So Paul was faithful in evangelism. He was a faithful model, but it's not as if he only preached the gospel. He was also faithfully instructing the church. Point four, I would say he... His comprehensive teaching. Paul comprehensively taught everything to the church. Look at verses 25 through 27. He says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of, the blood of all men. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Just, just consider the scope of Paul's teaching. In this teaching ministry, he delivered to them the whole purpose of God. Everything that God willed for this people to know, Paul did, Paul did not fail to faithfully teach them any of it. He did not shrink back from teaching them what he feared would be controversial or, or perhaps too compl complicated or too deep. No, he taught them everything. This means that Paul would have taught the Old Testament scriptures to the church. He explained to them God's dealing also with new covenant believers in the church age. Again, he, we would say he taught the whole Bible to them. 
from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, he would have explained God's covenants, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Old Covenant. He would have explained all of that. He would have explained the church's relation to Israel, covering the priestly covenant, and certainly the New Covenant, which we're all part of as New Covenant believers. He would have explained to them every area of a theology teaching them from the scriptures. He would explain to them eschatology, the study of future things. He would have studied with them the ecclesiology, teaching them about the life of the church. He would have studied with them bibliology, teaching them about how the Bible comes together and what is inerrancy and authority and scripture and all these things. He would have taught them theology proper. That is the, the theology of God the Father, who he is, his character. Along with that, he would have taught them about Christ, Christology. He would have taught them about the Holy Spirit and pneumatology, all of this. He would have taught them about mankind, what the Bible reveals about man, anthropology. He would have taught them about sin, hamartiology, all of these things. And, and maybe chief of all, the crown Jew of all, he would have taught them soteriology, how God saves sinners like us. He would have taught them things like election and predestination. He would have taught them about the scope of the atonement. He would have taught them about the new birth and regeneration and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the eternal security of believers, all the church being just given this great entrustment of truth, the whole counsel of God. And Paul did not shrink back from any of this. He gave it to them all. And not only teaching them just the doctrinal truths of these matters, but also bringing to how these truths then impact our lives and change our lives. So he would have been teaching them how to faithfully live in light of all this truth. And notice he didn't just teach the elders, but in verse 26, he taught it to all men. And that means everyone, men and women, the whole church. They would have all understood these things, all of it. It seems today that many pastor or teachers assume that what their people need is just a curated list of the topics that they think are important. Or maybe the topics that are just comfortable. And maybe they avoid the, comp the complicated, avoid the controversial, avoid, avoid certainly any of the sharp edges of Scripture. We don't want our people to have that. Perhaps they're afraid that the sheep will have their sensibilities offended. And they'll be offended, they'll leave, or perhaps we're afraid they won't, they'll get bored. And that somehow they'll lose interest in time. But that's never been my experience. My experience is that God's people love to know God's word and all of it. They, they love it. They love the scriptures and they're eager to go deep into the word of God. And that's what Paul did. This is his model for us. It's a comprehensive teaching model. Fifth, we find here Paul's example of vigilant shepherding. Paul exercised and urged faithful watch care over the flock. And a watch care that started, interestingly, with careful self-examination. Look at verse 28. Here's the command that we find in this passage, or one of the two. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. 
Paul directed these Ephesian elders first and foremost to be on guard for themselves. Think about that. Watch over yourself. Watch your own life. Make sure that you're growing in the truth. Make sure that you yourself are working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Listen, pastor elders, watch your own life. Make sure that you yourself are being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul told Timothy something similar in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, pay close attention to yourself. Watch over yourself. He says there, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching persevere in these things, for as you do so, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for your hearing, for your hearers. So a shepherd pastor must first and foremost keep in close watch over his own life. He must be a man who understands his own need for ongoing sanctification. Paul warns that even among your own midst, even among the church and perhaps even the elders themselves, there would be these savage wolves that rise up in the congregation, drawing away the flock into destructive air. Therefore, the elders of all people must lead a disciplined life. Additionally, they must also not only watch over their own life, they have to watch over the entire flock. All of the sheep, they were, they were to be cared for by the chief, by the, the shepherds. All of the sheep were there to remember this life that Paul lived among them and how he cared for them. And that was the example that Paul wanted these elders to have. It's been my observation that in many churches, it's the, really the healthy sheep that get all the attention. Those who are dabbling in some secret sin and who are slowly drifting out from the life of the church uh, they're the ones that are easily forgotten by the shepherds. And the truth is, is rarely do sick and hurting sheep who are being led away into sin, rare, rarely do they want to be shepherd. Rarely do they want the pastors coming after them. In that moment, they prefer to sort of be off in the hinterlands, hiding in dark shadows, uh, avoiding the shepherds. But it's the pastor's job to go get them, to go after the, the weak and the hurting he used to have his eye both on the strong and the weak. I mean, look again at verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul admonished each believer in the church. That means he would have been encouraging the faint-hearted. He would have been helping those who were weak. He would have been admonishing those who were in defiant sin or who were rebelling in some way. Like a faithful shepherd that gives individual attention to each of his lambs in his flock, so Paul functioned as a faithful pastor to give care to each member of the flock, each one of these blood-bought souls of the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 32 indicates that Paul did this with a great reliance on the word of God. Look at verse 32 with me. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And Paul knew that his time with these men had come to a close, and so he entrusted them to the word of God and to God himself, to the, to the word of his grace he left them to. And knowing that it was the word of God that would 
strengthen them and build them up. The, the word of God functioning as this sanctifying agent in their midst. I mean, I remind you of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Paul knew that. So he's, he's commending them to the word of God to build them up. Let me just mention two more descriptions of Paul's faithful ministry in closing. Note his relentless working and giving. Relentless working and giving. Look at beginning in verse 33. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here Paul labored diligently for three years among their midst. And really, no one could here question Paul's work ethic. If someone were to make an accusation that Paul was lazy, that person would have been laughed at. They would have said, Paul? Paul's the hardest working man I know. This guy's a relentless shepherd. He's constantly caring for us. And on top of all that, he makes his own living. He not only provides for himself, but he provides for these young pastors that are around him. Timothy Titus types. This man was constantly laboring. Paul was not looking for financial gain from the church. He poured out his life in sacrificial giving. It seems that he knows full well Jesus' words, reminding himself of this truth it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's like, I'm just giving my life out. I know there's great blessing there. And that, I mean, I just ask you, do you believe that? It's a greater blessing to give than to receive, to give your life away in service. That was Paul's example. And finally, observe number seven, his mutual affection, or the mutual affection that was the byproduct of, of all this. Let me just read to you those final verses again. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul. I mean, picture this. Kneeling in the sand, grown men weeping because they loved Paul so much. And they embraced him and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that, he would, that they would not see his face again. And then they saw him off to the ship. I mean, these men loved Paul. And clearly, he loved them. This elder team that shepherded this church, they, they loved one another, and they loved Paul. I mean, how could they not love him after this three-year investment that he gave to them, where he poured out his life for each one of them, desiring that each one of these men would be the best husband, the best father, the best grandfather, the best employee, a godly man that they would know sound doctrine that they would be able to govern the church and function as faithful shepherds in the church, oversee the church. These were men that Paul likely won to Christ. He evangelized them, and then he sought to see them sanctified in the truth. And, and the only natural byproduct of this is just this mutual affection that is created. So here's this pattern, this model. It's just reminding you, this physical presence, he gave them great time. And he sacrificially served them. He, he modeled evangelism before them. They watched him evangelize. And then he taught them the whole purpose of God, explained to them everything, constantly teaching, constantly entrusting them with truth. And then he vigilantly shepherded them, shepherding first and foremost his own soul and then caring for each one of them 
And then he relentlessly labored. He relentlessly gave of himself. And the result of all this is love, which Paul tells us, by the way, is really the goal of our teaching. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a, pure, a love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and, severe, and sincere faith. That's the goal. That's what we're striving for in the church. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that is pastoral ministry. That's what we should all be striving to attain, to have that sort of pastoral leadership in each one of our in each one of our lives and in our church, this should be true. This is what we're striving to. So join us in praying that as pastors, we would be this sort of men among you, that God would continue to raise up this type of elders and that we could almost even be a church that's sending out this type of pastor. Uh, not charlatans, not men who are out to make money, but men who want to shepherd God's sheep, who are trained and equipped to give them a, a, an entrustment of sound doctrine. That's what the world needs more of, those type of men who can build up healthy churches. And so we see that, may the Lord work that first and foremost in our own midst, in our own hearts. So let's pray towards that end this morning.